0: Welcome to Sundays with Matros Bible Church. We're glad you're here to join us in a study of God's Word. Upon all of these things, and on an individual and a church level, Leviticus is far too often left unread, unstudied, and misunderstood. And the cold indifference that many today treat this book with could not be any farther from the high regard that the Israelites held it in. So much so that this was the first book of the Torah that they introduced their children to at school. Leviticus is the place that they started to teach the next generation. And not just because they blindly desired for their children to just follow all the rules that lay within it, but because this people understood and got to experience for themselves what obedience to these rules and regulations brought them, a relationship. God had opened up a way for this sinful people to have a relationship with him, the one and only perfect and holy God. And for some odd reason, the modern church has judged the book of Leviticus with the same faulty scale that the world so often measures the church by. For when outsiders look into the lives of those who are wholeheartedly following after Jesus, they miss the relational aspect that we have with him, and their eyes become focused on the rules and regulations. They say, why don't you drink? Why don't you curse? Why don't you come out to this party with us? Oh, that's right. You're doing the God thing, and you aren't allowed to have any fun. All they see is rules and regulations, even though that's not what's at the heart of the matter. We're in it for the relationship. And when we get that right, we're able to recognize that the rules that God puts in place are there to act as guidelines to protect us from sin and ourselves, and his regulations are there to drive us to the means of redemption which he has provided. And these things are not a burden to us, but a joy. But for those outside of the relationship, they'll never be able to understand this. And we know what this standard of judgment feels like, but still, as we look down the corridor of time, all the way back to the book of Leviticus, we end up judging God's people who live during this period of God's redemptive plan with this same scale. We look at Leviticus and all we see is rules and regulations. So we say to ourselves, man, man, I'm glad I wasn't alive then, having to follow all of those things. And to this statement, the people who first received this message would respond, no, you're missing the point. Yes, there's obviously rules and regulations, but that's not what it's all about. It's about the relationship. And we forget that this is what was being made available to God's chosen people As they were camped at the foot of Mount Sinai, God was opening up a way to bring them back into his presence and worship him. And God's words to Moses, when he spoke to him from the burning bush, had come true. Exodus 3.12 says, And God said, Certainly I will be with you, and this shall be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God At this mountain. If we remember, the Israelites had made their way out of Egypt through the Red Sea and to the foot of Mount Sinai, and it's here where they're being taught to worship the Lord. If we recall the overall narrative of Exodus, we'll remember that after Moses had consecrated the people, he brought them out of the camp to meet God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Then God spoke to all the assembly the words of the Ten Commandments, and we see the people's response in chapter 20 of Exodus, in verses 18 through 21. All the people perceived the thunder and the lightning flashes, and the sound of the trumpet, and the mountain smoking, and when the people saw it, they trembled and stood at a distance. They said to Moses, Speak to us yourself, and we will listen. But let not God speak to us, or we will die. Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid, for God has come in order to test you, and in order that the fear of him may remain with you, so that you may not sin. So the people stood at a distance, while Moses approached the thick cloud where God was. The Lord then speaks to Moses and gives him ordinances for the people to follow, and Moses recounts all of these ordinances to the people, And we're told that they all came together with one voice saying, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. Thus accepting the terms of God's covenant. And Moses again ascends to the top of Mount Sinai, this time for 40 days and nights. During this time, God gives him instructions for the construction of the tabernacle and its instruments, instructions for the priests, instructions for the celebration of the Sabbath, and the Lord also gives Moses two stone tablets of the testimony which were written by the finger of God. And regrettably, we also must recall that these two tablets were thrown to the ground by Moses and shattered when he came near the camp and saw the people dancing and worshiping the golden calf that Aaron had fashioned. As we remember, Moses destroys the calf, God punishes the people for their sin. Thankfully, though, the Lord is both gracious and merciful. He restores the two tablets of stone that have been shattered and renewed the covenant with his people. Moses then takes up a contribution from the people for the construction of the tabernacle in the manner which the Lord had commanded him to do. And the construction of the tabernacle begins in chapter 36 of Exodus and is completed in chapter 38. And we see in chapter 40, verse 17, the tabernacle being erected for the first time. Now in the first month of the second year, on the first day of the month, the tabernacle was erected. And after Moses finished doing all that the Lord commanded, we see what happens next in verses 34 through 35. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And the events in Exodus set forth both the timeline of Leviticus and also the necessity of its message. As for the timeline, the tabernacle was erected for the first time in the first month of the second year on the first day of the month. As we've just seen In Exodus chapter 40, verse 17. And we also see in Numbers chapter 10, verses 11 through 13, when it was taken down for the first time. Now in the second year, in the second month, on the 20th of the month, the cloud was lifted from over the tabernacle of the testimony, and the sons of Israel set out on their journeys from the wilderness of Sinai. Then the clouds settled in the wilderness of Paran, so they moved out for the first time according to the commandment of the Lord through Moses. And the events of Leviticus take place within these two dates. And the events that we recapped in Exodus also clearly paint the portrait of why the message of Leviticus was a necessity. God's descent upon Mount Sinai in fire Caused the whole mountain to be covered in smoke, like the smoke ascending from a furnace. His presence caused the whole mountain to shake violently. The people needed to be consecrated just so they could approach the foot of the mountain, and God told Moses that if anyone touched the mountain, beast or animal, they would surely be put to death. Furthermore, the people were terrified from the Lord's presence and the Lord's voice speaking upon the mountain while they were at a distance. And now this same exact God had filled the tabernacle with his glory and was going to go forth in the midst of his people. And this event in Exodus 40 creates the tension and the fundamental problem to which the book of Leviticus speaks. Now that the glory of the Lord has descended upon the tabernacle, how are the people to draw near his holy presence? And this is the background that must first be remembered before we even look at the book of Leviticus. Yet there's one more piece that speaks of both its vital importance and the centrality of this book. We've taken a quick look at the overview of the events that led up to Leviticus, but we can also learn much from considering where God has chosen to record this book in his word. <clears throat> Leviticus is part of the Pentateuch, which literally means five scrolls or five books. And as we've taken note from past Old Testament studies, many biblical authors would have structured their writings on a big or small level in a chiastic pattern with their key message being placed at the center rather than at the end like we're accustomed to today. And multiple scholars have taken note of the fact that it's no accident that we find the book of Leviticus right in the center of the Pentateuch. And near the center of the book of Leviticus, we see instructions for the annual day of atonement. Both of which speak to the fundamental problem that was caused by the fall in Genesis three. How can sinful man come back into the presence of a holy God? And with all of this background information in mind, Let's take a look at this morning's text. Leviticus chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. Leviticus 1, 1 through 17. Then the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When any man of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of animals from the herd or the flock. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer it, a male without defect. He shall offer it at the doorway of the tent of meeting, that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, that it may be accepted for him to make atonement on his behalf." He shall slay the young bull before the Lord, and Aaron's sons, the priests, shall offer up the blood and sprinkle the blood around on the altar that is at the doorway of the tent of meeting. He shall then skin the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. The sons of Aaron, the priests, shall put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. Then Aaron's sons, the priests, shall arrange the pieces, the head and the suet over the wood which is on the fire that is on the altar. It's entrails, however, and its legs he shall wash with water. And the priest shall offer up and smoke all of it on the altar for a burnt offering, an offering by fire of a soothing aroma to the Lord. But if his offering is from the flock of the sheep or of the goats for a burnt offering, he shall offer it a male without defect. He shall slay it on the side of the altar northward before the Lord, and Aaron's sons, the priests, shall sprinkle its blood around on the altar." He shall then cut it into its pieces with its head in its suet, and the priest shall arrange them on the wood which is on the fire that is on the altar. The entrails, however, and the legs he shall wash with water. And the priest shall offer all of it, and offer it up in smoke on the altar. It is a burnt offering, an offering by fire of a soothing aroma to the Lord. But if his offering to the Lord is a burnt offering of birds... Then he shall bring his offering from the turtle doves or from young pigeons. The priest shall bring it to the altar and wring off its head and offer up in smoke on the altar. And its blood is to be drained out on the side of the altar. He shall also take away its crop with its feathers and cast it beside the altar eastward to the place of the ashes. Then he shall tear it by its wings but shall not sever it. And the priest shall offer it up in smoke on the altar on the wood which is on the fire. It is a burnt offering, an offering by fire, fire, of a soothing aroma to the Lord. So reads the word of the living God. And the first thing that we take note of in verse 1 is how the Lord relays this message to his people. He called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. And throughout Leviticus, we'll see a very similar phrase to this one being used over and over again, the phrase, then the Lord spoke to Moses. This will help us understand the structure of the book of Leviticus, and additionally, the words that often follow right after this phrase will help us keep track of whom the Lord is speaking to. We'll see that the Lord commands Moses to repeat the words that he is giving him to two primary groups either the sons of Israel or to Aaron and his sons. And yet, despite the dissimilarity of this phrase that we see frequently, this exact phrase that we see here in verse 1 is used only once in Leviticus. The Lord spoke to Moses many times throughout the book, but we only see him calling to Moses once right here at the outset. And we do well to remember that this is not the first time that the Lord had called to Moses either. He called to him from the burning bush, and he also called him to the top of Mount Sinai. And while each of these callings would have been easy for the original audience, the Hebrews, to recollect, they also had another thing helping direct them to see this fact as well. The Lord's calling would have been made even more clear from the title of this book in their Hebrew Bibles. It was not Leviticus, but Wakara, which is the opening word of the book. And he, the Lord, called. And both the opening word and the title of this book would have served as an ever-present reminder to the Israelites as to who the initiator in their relationship was. It was God who reached out first, not them. He reached out to Abraham, their father, to Moses, their mediator, and he reached out and set forth the terms and the means of the covenant. God is always the one who reaches out first, not man. He is the one who calls out to his people, not the other way around. Verse 2. The Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When any man of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of animals from the herd or the flock. And verse 2 sets the precedent as to where the Israelites were to gather any animal that they were to offer up to the Lord, whether it be used for the burnt offering, the peace offering, sin offering, or guilt offering. The animal was to be from the herd or the flock which is just a simple way to reference both the small and large animals that would have been herded by the Israelites. And built into this command as well was the implication that they were not to use any wild animals for their sacrifice. And the language used to describe both the offering itself and the act of offering it, both the noun and the verb, helped clue us in to one of the intended results of this sacrifice. The offering itself, korban, and the act of bringing or offering it, korab, both mean to draw near or to approach. Which, as we remember from the introduction, is a problem that the Israelites now faced. God had manifested his presence among them in the tabernacle, but now they needed to know how to draw near. And God's answer is through sacrifice. As we move on to verse 3, we see that the instructions God tells Moses to speak to the people have moved from an overall introduction to a specific sacrifice. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer it a male without defect. He shall offer it at the doorway of the tent of meeting that he may be accepted before the Lord. And the remainder of chapter 1 spells out the details that the people are to follow in regards to the burnt offering. The Hebrew word that is used to describe this specific type of offering finds its root from a word that means ascend, or to go up in smoke. And this offering was by far the most common offering to be made to the Lord. And while Moses was on Mount Sinai, the Lord gave him instructions as to the frequency Of the burnt offering. We see this in Exodus 29, verses 38 through 46. The Lord said to Moses, Now this is what you shall offer on the altar two one year old lambs each day, continuously. The one lamb you shall offer in the morning, and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. And there shall be one tenth of an ephah of fine flour, mixed with one fourth of a hin of beaten oil, one fourth of a hin of wine for a drink offering with one lamb. The other lamb you shall offer at twilight, and shall offer with it the same grain offering and the same drink offering as in the morning, for a soothing aroma and offering by fire to the Lord. It shall be a continual burnt offering throughout your generations at the doorway of the tent of meeting before the Lord, where I will meet with you to speak to you there. I will meet there with the sons of Israel, and I shall be consecrated by my glory, I will consecrate the tent of meeting in the altar. I will also consecrate Aaron and his sons to minister as priests to me. I will dwell among the sons of Israel and will be their God. They shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. Additionally, in Leviticus chapter 6, verses 9, 12, and 13, <clears throat> we see the instructions that Moses is to give to the priests. Command Aaron and his sons, saying, This is the law of the burnt offering. The burnt offering itself shall remain on the hearth on the altar all night until morning, and the fire on the altar is to be kept burning on it. The fire on the altar shall be kept burning on it. It shall not go out. But the priest shall burn wood on it every morning, and he shall lay out the burnt offering on it and offer up in smoke the fat portions of the peace offerings on it. Fire shall be kept burning continuously on the altar. It is not to go out. We could see from these verses that these daily burnt offerings were to be given on behalf of the whole assembly, ensuring that there was always smoke rising up to the Lord as a sweet aroma. And in addition to these twice daily burnt offerings made on behalf of all of the people, we see here in Leviticus chapter 1. Instructions for those who wish to voluntarily offer a burnt offering to the Lord as well. And for those that wish to do so, both the individual and the priests are given detailed instructions on what to do. If their sacrifice was from the herd, it was to be a male without defect. Verse 3. If it was from the flock, which would have either been sheep or goats, it was to be a male without defect, verse 10. <clears throat> and if it was a burnt offering of birds, it was either to be from turtle doves or young pigeons, verse 14. And we see from both verse 3 and verse 10 the quality of the offering that was to be brought to the Lord <clears throat> it was to be without defect, having no blemishes or deformities. We can see from this that God had no desire for the people to offer him neither a worthless nor an average run-of-the-mill animal. He would only receive the best that they had to offer. An offering of anything less than the best of what the people could bring, whether that was a bull, a sheep or a goat, or a turtle dove or a pigeon, would have been a direct indication to the Lord that their heart was not in the right place. The Lord has never been, nor will he ever be, interested in receiving second best. It would bring him no delight to have his people go out to their herds or flocks and pick out some virtually useless or valueless animal and then bring it to the Lord. In the last book of the Old Testament, God lets his people know through his prophet Malachi what he thinks of sacrifices that were offered in this manner. Malachi chapter one, verses six through 14 says, A son honors his father, and a servant his master. Then if I am a father, where is my honor? If I am a master, where is my respect? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? You're presenting defiled food upon my altar. But you say, how have we defiled you? In that you say, the table of the Lord is to be despised. But when you present the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you present the lame and sick, is it not evil? Why not offer it to your governor? Would he be pleased with you? Or would he receive you kindly, says the Lord of hosts? But now will you entreat God's favor, that he may be gracious to us? With such an offering on your part, will he receive any of you kindly, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the gates, that you might not uselessly kinder fire on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from you. For from the rising of the sun, even to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place incense is going to be offered to my name in a grain offering that is pure. For no, my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you are profaning it, and that you say, The table of the Lord is defiled, and as for its fruit, its food is to be despised. You also say, My, how tiresome it is, and you disdainfully sniff at it, says the Lord. But cursed be the swindler who has a male in his flock and vows it, but sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name is feared among the nations." And this is one of the reasons that the Lord requires an animal without defect. Along these same lines is also why the Lord would only accept animals from the Israelites' flocks or herds rather than wild animals. For just as he had no desire to receive some deformed animal of little value to the worshiper, he also has no desire to receive a wild animal that has zero value to the worshiper. And while bringing a burnt offering to the Lord is no longer a thing today, still this principle stands the same for what we offer to the Lord. The Lord we're worshiping today is the same God that these people were worshiping. And he's not interested in us giving anything to him if we're presenting him with some cheap, leftover, second best type of offering. Too often we say to ourselves, man, Sunday's right around the corner. Should probably shove some money in the offering box. Let me go out to my car and scratch up some change to give to the Lord. To this God says, keep it. I don't need it and I certainly don't want it if your heart is in the wrong place. When we wake up in the morning, and too often I'm guilty of this, and there's so many things that need to get done that we say, sorry Lord, I guess I'm going to have to make time to be in your word and prayer later on, whenever I have some free time, because right now, I'm just too busy for you. God says, don't even bother then, because I'm not interested in being second best. When our schedules are so packed with us running around to all these other aimless things and devoting all of our time to work so that we can have more and better stuff, and we give God whatever is left over of our energy, money, and time, God says, Present that level of energy to your employer and see if he is pleased. Give whatever money you have left over to the mortgage company and see how they react. Give only of your spare time to your family and see how much they love you for it. Man, we must be kidding ourselves if we think the Lord is pleased with anything we offer to him with the wrong heart attitude. The Lord says, where is my honor? Where is my respect? Don't you know that I am the Lord? Don't you realize that I am a great king and my name will be feared among the nations? Let us not make these same mistakes because as we can clearly see, the Lord is not pleased with that type of offering. <clears throat> the offerers are to bring an animal without defect And not only because it reveals the attitude of their heart, but also because of what the sacrifice animal is accomplishing for the offer. Look again at verses 3 through 9. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer it a male without defect. He shall offer it at the doorway of the tent of meeting that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, that it may be accepted for him to make atonement on his behalf. He shall slay the young bull before the Lord, and Aaron's sons the priests, shall offer up the blood and sprinkle the blood around on the altar that is at the doorway of the tent of meeting. He shall then skin the burnt offering and cut it into its pieces. The sons of Aaron the priest shall put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire." Then Aaron's sons, the priest, shall arrange the pieces, the head and the suet, over the wood which is on the fire that is on the altar. Its entrails, however, and its legs he shall wash with water. And the priest shall offer up and smoke all of it on the altar for a burnt offering, an offering by fire of a soothing aroma to the Lord. And in these verses, there is a ton to unpack. We see the result of the offering for the offerer at the end of verse 3. We see how the offering works to accomplish this result in verse 4. We see the particulars for both the individual and the priest in verses 5 through 9. And we see the result of the offering for the Lord at the end of verse 9. First, the result for the offerer. He shall offer it at the doorway of the tent of meeting that he may be accepted before the Lord. An acceptance before the Lord is the end result. As the commentators of the expositors Bible commentary have put it, the final phrase of verse 3 registers the result of the burnt offering, reconciliation with the Lord. This is what is brought about by the sacrifice. But how does this work? And we have a slide of the tabernacle that we can pop up. And I think seeing this will hopefully help us understand the process. So we're gonna walk through the whole process first and then go back and unpack what it means. And the offerer brings his or her animal through the entrance into the courtyard and then goes to the brazen altar. And we're told that this altar is the one at the doorway of the tent of meeting, not the altar of incense which is in the holy place the offerer either here at the altar or somewhere within the outer courtyard would then find a priest. Then the offerer lays his hand on the head of the burnt offering and they would slay the young bull themselves before the Lord, verse five. If it was a sheep or a goat, the offerer would slay it themselves, verse 11. And we're told if the offering was from birds, the priest would kill it. And this was most likely due to the size of the animal because it was more delicate process involved in killing it, and they wouldn't want to damage it, rendering it useless for the offering. So the offerer would slay the bull, goat, or sheep. Presumably, there would be some type of basin that was used to catch the blood. The priest would then take some of the blood and sprinkle or scatter it on the altar. We're told that the offerer then skins and cuts the animal into its pieces, The priest is then required to put fire on the altar, arrange the wood, and then arrange the pieces of the animal, the head and the fat, on the wood that's burning on the altar. The internal organs and legs of the animal are to be washed with water by the offerer, and then the priest is to offer all of it up in smoke to the Lord. This is the process for the animals. The birds had some differences. Once again, most of these differences would have been because of the proportion in their size. So this is the process. But what is the significance behind these things? And as we'll see, the theology packed in here is rich. First, we observe where the animal was to be offered. We see in verse 3, at the doorway of the tent of meeting, And Matthew Henry takes note of the significance of this location. He says, the offerer must offer it at the door as one unworthy to enter and acknowledging that there is no admission for a sinner into covenant and communion with God but by sacrifice. We then take notice of the result at the end of verse three that he may be accepted Before the Lord. And as we can clearly see, the purpose of the sacrifice is reconciliation with the Lord. Yet we must also take note that this offering is a voluntary one. It was not required for the individual worshiper, and unlike the sin and guilt offering, there is no specific sins listed that this offering is meant to cover, thus raising the question if it's not covering any specific sin, then what is it providing atonement for? And we can see from its usage throughout Scripture that it was used to make payment for sins in general. The theologian Derek Tidball also captures the significance of both its general and voluntary nature in relation to our human condition. He reminds us of the necessity of atonement, not so much for what we fail to do, as for what we are. That is, we are sinners by nature and disposition as well as by practice. He then goes on to say, whatever other purposes the sacrifice may have fulfilled, it reminds us that it was and is impossible for anyone to approach God without being conscious of sin And having this barrier removed before other business may be conducted. And this is where the atonement of verse 4 comes into play. For this is how God is able to remove the barrier. The offerer laid his hands on the head of the animal, and the word that's used here would mean that he leaned in heavily or took hold of the animal's head. And in so doing, he was declaring both that the animal belonged to him. And that he was placing his trust in God that this animal may be accepted for atonement on his behalf, recognizing that he deserved to die because of his own sin, yet also recognizing that the death of this animal would provide a covering and a payment for his sins. It would provide atonement. The offerer would then kill the animal himself, further signifying that the animal was given as a substitution. The spotless animal was to die in place of the sinner. Its life was to pay the penalty for his sin and it was able to do so because of its unblemished state. The priest would then sprinkle some of the blood on the sides of the altar and the blood is of vital importance. For as we're told in Leviticus seventeen eleven, the life of the flesh is in the blood and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. And the sprinkling of blood on the altar would have prepared the altar for the offering. The offerer then skins the animal and cuts it into its pieces. After this was done, the priest would prepare the fire on the altar, arrange the pieces of the animal on the wood which was burning on the altar, and we're able to see that the threefold Mention of altar in verses 7, 8, and 9 highlight the importance of it as God's divinely apportioned place of sacrifice. We're told in verse 9, animals' internal organs and legs were to be washed by the worshiper. The legs were most likely left unskinned. These parts were to be washed because they would have been considered unclean, but for the burnt offering The whole of the animal was to be offered to the Lord. All except the animal's hide, which would go to the priest, as seen in Leviticus 7, 8. And then the priest was to offer up in smoke, all of it on the altar for a burnt offering. The whole animal was to be offered to the Lord. And as one theologian points out, this is the distinguishing feature of this sacrifice. As opposed to others The whole of it was burnt up on the altar. It speaks of total surrender, entire consecration, and complete dedication to the Lord. All of it was to be offered up in smoke. And the word used here for this specific type of burning, the offering going up in smoke, is a technical term that's used in Scripture for sacrificial burning. It's a verb that's used when there's incense to be burned, And it's different than the common word used for burning to totally destroy. The implication here is that the burning is turning something into a fragrance by fire. The sacrifice is transformed into smoke and rises up to God as a soothing aroma. And this brings us to the end result of the sacrifice from the Lord's perspective. Verse 9, the priest shall offer up and smoke all of it on the altar for a burnt offering, an offering by fire, a soothing aroma to the Lord. And the scent of this sacrifice, as we can see, was pleasant and delightful to the Lord. But not for the same reasons that other cultures of this time would have presumed that their fake gods were delighted by their sacrifices. For the Lord does not need to be fed a meal by his creation. The reason he's delighted is not because he can smell dinner cooking on the stove. Nor is he delighted simply because of the size of the sacrifice. We can see that this second one is true directly from our text. Look at God's response to the rich man's offering of a bull in verse 9. A soothing aroma to the Lord. God's response to the middle-class offering of a sheep or a goat in verse 13, a soothing aroma to the Lord. And God's response to the poor widow's sacrifice of a turtle dove or young pigeon in verse 17, a soothing aroma to the Lord. The Lord is not delighted with the size of the sacrifice that his people bring to him. He's delighted by the attitude of their hearts and their obedience To his laws. And friends, this is just as true today as it was 3,500 years ago. God's not interested in having your stuff. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. No, He's interested in having your heart. And as we've seen this morning, He's not interested in just having part of it. He'll only be satisfied when we surrender all of it. To him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you now and thank you again that we can gather and be in your word, Lord. Thank you that it's alive and active and that it can speak to us. Just pray as we consider your word that was taught here this morning that we would each look into our lives, examine our hearts, and see the motivation behind what we bring to you, Lord. If we're simply doing stuff out of the motion, out of routine, out of the motions, Lord, or if we're doing it as a reflection of what you've given to us, fully surrendering everything to you, Lord, not because of who we are, but because of what you've done, Lord. Pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. <laughs> We trust you were challenged by the word of the Lord and invite you to join us again. If you'd like to learn more about our ministry and Montrose, come worship with us at 930 every Sunday along Lake Avenue.